Welcome to the Vision for the Valley podcast. I am your host, Joseph Velarde. In this podcast, we will discover the gym that is the Lehigh Valley and learn from people from all walks of life. Welcome to another episode of the Vision for the Valley podcast. I'm your host, Joe Velarde. I'm so excited to have my good friend who I've known for over a decade, the Reverend, the Bishop, Hal Hopkins. He's joining us today. And one of the things that we're doing as uh, we're in the midst of COVID-19 is we're having people uh, who are not specifically from the Valley or in the Valley on the podcast to help us with discerning how to lead in the midst of COVID-19, as well as for you to hear people who've influenced me deeply and have impacted my vision for the Valley. And then the last reason is because there's so many questions I have about life and leadership. And I want to ask those questions to people that I trust and admire and, and how's one of those guys. And so I thought it'd be fun for you to be in on those conversations. And so just to hit the record button and to allow you to hear some of those things that I'm learning. And as I'm leaning into conversations about life and leadership and how is from uh, West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground. He spent most of his days, uh, but how <laughs> welcome to the podcast, man. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what it is that you're involved in. Thank you, Pastor Joe. Um, yes, it is true. I'm from um, Philadelphia and West Philadelphia more specifically. Um, grew up a little tiny street there and just played in the streets like many of us did in Philadelphia. Went to school just a few blocks away from home, uh, walked to school and um, Midway through my elementary years, um, I was part of desegregation. I didn't understand it as desegregation then. All I knew is they had transferred us from our local school in Philadelphia um, and transferred us to South Philadelphia to do my fourth, fifth, and sixth grades in a uh, strong Italian neighborhood. And... Uh, started, I guess, beginning to learn some things about race and the issues of race uh, while taking that journey. Mm, mm. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about that, Hal, like as far as, you know, desegregation, what that was like to be a part of that, and what were some of the things you learned, even on the front end of, you know, just as a young, young boy at that, at that point in time? Sure. Um, it was never explained to us why we were being transferred. You know, you leave it up to your own guesses, whatever, whatever you wanted to think about it. All we knew is that the next year we were going to take a bus. That bus was going to take us to this new school. And by the way, that was a, that was a 45 minute ride one direction wow. uh, to get to this new school. And there were, I guess, uh, two, maybe three busloads of kids from various parts of uh, Philadelphia. One was my school and at least one other school I'm aware of uh, in West Philly that bussed students into this uh, predominantly, again, Italian uh, community elementary school. Mm. And that's when I, again, that's when I began to learn some things about race. Uh, like I didn't really understand uh, the occasions when we had uh, we were on the bus and we had neighborhood kids throwing eggs at our bus. Mm. I didn't quite get all of that. I didn't understand it. Nobody ever explained it. I look back on it now 
and understand it a bit better. But I guess those were really my first, some of my earliest, at least, impressions about the issues of race in America. Yeah. So how did that, how did that impact you, Hal? Like, as you like, think back and as you were journeying through, you know, how, how has that impacted your, your life and your story? Well, again, I, uh, at the time, there was no explanation. Mm-hmm. I only understood that, obviously, these people didn't care much for us. Mm. Um, it, it looked like they didn't want us in the neighborhood uh, because, you know, everyone on my bus was African-American. Mm. Mm. So, you know, we knew we were not at home. We knew this was not our community. Um, and these people didn't give us a real welcome into the school, at least that's kind of how I'm interpreting it. Uh, Again, without explanation, what does a kid in fourth grade interpret this to mean? Mm. Mm. Uh, People don't want us there. And um, I guess that left something of an indelible impression. And uh, now, again, as I look back on that and many, many, many other experiences uh, since then, Uh, It reminds me over and over again that I'm an African-American man Mm. in a nation that is not very receptive to or kind to, maybe is a better way to say it, is not always kind to African-Americans. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Hal, as we're going to jump into more of that conversation, and I just want to acknowledge, man, I'm so sorry. And I know we've talked about this at great lengths together, you and I. Um, but man, I'm, I'm sorry that you had those experiences and yet I'm grateful for how you've allowed them to really lean in to what God's called you to, because one of the things that is true about how we're going to talk about a couple of different things. We're going to talk about leadership. Um, we're going to talk about that in the, the context of, uh, leadership, both in raising up and developing and seeing other leaders come from your leading them. Um, We're going to talk about serving our community in the midst of COVID-19, but we are going to drill down a good bit of this conversation on race in America and and how do we deal with the sin of racism and the the sting of it, especially in light of of what's happened and what continues to happen uh, with another black man shot, um, specifically Ahmaud Arbery. And as we think about what's transpired there, um, our hearts are are really heavy um, and, and we want to be more than people that say, wow, that was a, a tragedy. <laughs> we want to be people who acknowledge uh, wh- what happened, why it happened, and our way forward in the midst of it. And so how's one of those guys who has really um, leaned in with me, not just on the conversation of race, also on leadership. He's, like I said, early on on the podcast, he's a mentor and a friend. Um, when I was looking at church planning and starting Riverbend Community Church. He was one of the first guys <laughs> that I met from the Baptist Resource Network. And I know it's hard to mm-hmm. believe, but he actually signed off on me. Uh, but he, <laughs> <laughs> he signed off on me. And he's been a constant encourager uh, throughout my journey. And even in the, you know, even in the, the ebbs and flows of leadership, he's been a voice to affirm who I am, but also lovingly challenge me when I'm, when I'm off base a bit. Um, without even me knowing it at the time. So as we think about that, Hal, I wanted to, to just ask you, um, just as you think about leadership and, and really, I mean, there are so many people that I know who have been impacted by your life. I think about 
my own story, but then I think about Pastor Larry Anderson. I think about Pastor Kyle Canty. Um, you know, there are so many others that I don't even know <laughs> who have been impacted mm-hmm. uh, by you. So I just wanted to ask you this, this question of how have you poured into the next generation of pastors and church planners? Sure. Well, I learned uh, in my first pastorate, uh, which seems like a lifetime ago now, I learned very early on from a, uh, a mentor of mine that um, one of the most important things that I could do as a pastor was to specifically mentor men. Mm. Uh, I grew up in African-American context, an African-American church, and uh, one of the critiques that some people have is that the church is full of a lot of women and not as many men. And this particular pastor that was mentoring me uh, had a strong uh, men's ministry. And generally his church was 50% men or 50% male, 50% female. And those are pretty good numbers for the African-American church. Uh, Most churches don't come close to those numbers. Uh, in terms of uh, 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 demographics, uh, gender demographics. So uh, I listened to him, and I made it a part of my ministry early on to start uh, discipling, very deliberately discipling men in my church. And I guess it spilled over as I, as I gained influence among mm-hmm. peers. Um, and we talk about ministry and, and what – I might recommend or what I was doing or what I felt like was like was uh, important and maybe even at some level successful. Um, And I would remind them of the responsibility that we needed to disciple men. We needed to do it deliberately. That wasn't going to happen by osmosis. It wasn't going to happen unless we had a strategy for it. And so I've, uh, as long as I can remember in ministry, uh, encourage people as I've had the opportunity to be very deliberate about uh, having some kind of deliberate discipleship ministry to reach and to develop men in their churches. Yeah, that's, that's So that's an, kind of where it started. Yeah. And you, you had your first pastorate back in 2000, isn't that right? As I said, it was a lifetime ago. <laughs> What, what, what year? Do you mind sharing that with us just for context? Yeah, no, no, I don't mind. Uh, yeah, my, I, my first church I went to was in 1981. Wow. And I had just turned, uh, um, within a month of turning 24 years old, I was in my first church. Wow. Pastoring, that is. Senior yeah. pastor. Yeah, well, it's incredible to watch because, you know, one of the things, too, with how is uh, – He's what's called, you know, and I don't want to butcher your title, so you speak into this, Hal, but uh, he's what's called a church planning catalyst um, with mm-hmm. the network and the North American Mission Board. And he's worked really hand in hand with me and, and what we're doing here in the Lehigh Valley to identify uh, potential areas and not just the Lehigh Valley alone, also in Philadelphia, but to identify other areas and uh, specifically um, to exegete communities, to get to know those communities, and then to find the right leader. Uh, and, and when we say leader, to find a person who's called to start a new work within that area. And so we've, we've been able to, to journey together through that. And as I've gotten to know 
Pastor Larry Anderson and Pastor Kyle Canty, who are incredible leaders as well, I can clearly see, uh, and as they'll describe, just the, the influence that you've had as far as pouring into their lives. And so I wanted to ask you how, if, if we're thinking about this in our own lives, you said there was a deliberate uh, discipleship method. I wanted to ask you, what steps would you encourage us to take in, in that endeavor? As we think about, you know, the, you know there's always this uh, leadership crisis, and I'm sure even back then and even now, right, we always hear that there's a leadership crisis. And a lot of times people say, you know, you have to go out and find leaders. <laughs> and, and really, uh, for what you just said, it's not about going to find leaders. It's actually going to develop leaders, right? <laughs> they, you sure, know, absolutely. And so I was just curious, what steps would you encourage us to take um, in our own leadership development of others around us? Well, I had and I do have a very sophisticated system for selecting who I would invest my life in. Hmm. And here's that sophisticated system. It's the acronym FAT. And you've heard it, I'm sure. <laughs> but it's those that are faithful, those that are available, and those that are teachable. Mm-hmm. That's my criteria. If they meet that criteria, I'm willing to invest my life in anything that I have in terms of ministry or, or personally, I'm willing to you know, do what I can to help them to get to the next level. Uh, so I did it. I did it as a pastor. I do it in my role as a church planter catalyst. Uh, my greatest, some of my greatest joys come from, from having an opportunity to help other, other people to get to their place in God's kingdom work, whatever that looks like. So however I can stimulate them to get there, encourage them to get there, direct them to get there, uh, those are my greatest joys to see the light come on and the uh, opportunities uh, open up for people to get to where God wants them in, uh, in their place in his kingdom. Mm-hmm. So that's my simple, that's really my simple criteria. No, that's awesome. So when we say faithful, available, teachable, we're, we're looking for people who have a proven track record when you say faithful. Is that correct, Hal? Is that how you, how would you break those down? Yeah. Um, when I say faithful, I mean, you know, as simple as do they just show up for church? If I'm, if I'm looking from a pastoral perspective, do they show up for church? Uh, do I see them showing up for, you know, small group or Bible studies or wherever it is they're supposed to be in ministry? You know, the basic things, are they there? Can I, uh, uh, can I, can I depend on the fact that they're going to show up. So uh, when you give a, a, an assignment, as simple as the assignment might be, um, do they take care of it? Uh, and I usually try very simple assignments that people can do to test their faithfulness early on. Um, it doesn't have to be a big thing, uh, something very simple. Can you, can you show up next Sunday and help with stacking the chairs, getting the chairs ready for our worship time or setup, or can you lend a hand with the audiovisual ministry, whatever it looks like? And I want to see, do they show up? Do they do, they do that? Hmm. Uh, can you show up to help our, our, our team around the church who cleans up? Can you come and clean up, you know, twice a month to help that team? So, so faithful to do the small things, because the scripture tells us in no uncertain terms, the ones that are faithful in least are faithful in much. And of course, the converse is true. 
If they're not faithful in the small things, they won't be faithful with the bigger things. And I don't want somebody I have to chase behind and mm-hmm. try to get them to do. I want somebody who's willing to be faithful. You can't teach faithfulness. Mm-hmm. They have to be that. So available means just that they're available. Some people are too busy to be discipled. Mm-hmm. They've got too much going on. They've already got their calendar full. They're not willing to make adjustments for it. And so they, they're doing life the way they want to do life. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if they're going to be discipled, they've got to make themselves available. When Jesus called his disciples, he said, he challenged them to come and follow me. So they had to make a choice about their own priorities, about their own decisions, and they had to decide, am I willing to go and follow Jesus? Am I willing to interrupt my schedule to do that? Am I willing to leave my, uh, to, to leave, uh, my responsibility as a fisherman? and come and follow Jesus. So if people are not willing to do that and make themselves available, you can't disciple them. And then teachable. If you can't teach them anything, if they know everything, if, uh, if they're already there and um, they're not going to hear very much of what you say. And I'm the kind of guy who I may see a need in someone's life, but I don't always speak into that because the teacher doesn't really need to show up until the student is ready to learn. (laughs) So if that student is not ready to learn, if he's not teachable, I'm wasting my energy, my time and my effort to try to redirect them towards something else or to try to make some kind of deposit into their lives. So I wait, they've got to be, they've got to, they've got to model something. They've got to demonstrate something that, that says they're teachable, something that says, my ears are open. Something that communicates uh, to me as a shepherd that they're, they're interested and open to somebody speaking into their situation. It's like the guy who's drowning. He's not ready to listen until he's gone down for the third time and he's just about out of breath and has no other option. Hmm. It's at that point that you can put your arm out and say, here, let me grab you and pull you back into shore. But as long as he's still fighting and struggling, and thinks he's going to get it, thinks he's going to make it happen on his own, he's not very teachable. Mm. Mm. So good, man. So let me ask you, like, as you think about once you, your, your complex system, <laughs> as you call it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> available, teachable, uh, what, do you, what do you specifically try to do with them as far as, like, do you, do you have a curriculum you use? Do you try to do more life on life? Do you do a mixture? How do you go about that? And what would you encourage as we try to figure out, hey, here's some things that you could tangibly uh, do with someone you're trying to disciple? Sure. And uh, my, my quick answer to your question would be all of the above that you've mentioned. Okay. I have some curriculum that I've used over the years. I've used different curricula curricula in different context Mm -hmm. um, where I've been um, my first in my first pastorate, for example, um, my mentor that uh, recommended discipling men was also an African-American pastor in, in the city in West Philadelphia. And uh, he had actually written a curriculum on discipling black men. So it was very specifically designed to reach those in the urban context, African-American men, 
uh, and it was based on David's mighty men. It's mm, awesome. Um, it was great curriculum um, to help us to, um, you know, try to help our men to be strong, to build them up, to have courage, to remind them they had a fight ahead. And in, in, in the case of David's mighty men, their, their job was to make him king. And the curriculum was really based on making Jesus king in our lives and in our communities, et cetera. So I used that very early on. But I mean, I've used I've used material from a number of sources uh, that are out there, you know, old navigator material, crew or Campus Crusade, old material. I've used that. Um, but I, I don't think it's as much a curriculum. Yeah as it is a concept. And if you remember in, I believe it's Mark chapter three, when Jesus called his disciples, it says, and he called them that they might be with him. Mm -hmm. So, so much of what we need other people to get is better caught than taught. Now that idea is frightening because you're inviting people to watch what you do and you're putting yourself out there as a model, a flawed model, no doubt. But if a man is not prepared to say, follow me as I follow Christ, he's not prepared to be a leader. Mm. Now, again, that's a frightening thought mm. uh, that, that you're inviting people to watch you and learn from you. And also that means to, to at some level, critique you and mm. what you're doing. Uh, but that's a part of the transparency of ministry is that if you really want, if you really want people to be genuine in their faith, you've got to be genuine about yours as well and be willing to let people in. So I, I really believe it's more about relationship than it is about finding the right book yeah. or the right curriculum to use in order to accomplish the task of discipleship. Well, and I think you're right on too about just the, the value of, you know, my, I have a good friend named Ed Hanna. He works for, I know you mentioned crew uh, for, mm -hmm. for Valley crew. And he talks about we're we're meant to be filled up to spill out, you know, and when yeah, we're yeah. with Jesus, um, you know, we're, we're meant to be filled, continually being filled up by him and then spilling out, you know, in the life of others. And I think even to add uh, to that dynamic, so they're going to follow us, as we follow Jesus, but then eventually they're going to say to somebody else, follow me as I follow Jesus, you know? Absolutely. So, so really Absolutely. the goal is this multiplication effect and really to help people to understand, Hey, at the end of this, uh, we're, we'll always be friends. We'll always be family. Uh, but eventually you're going to do this for others, what I've done for you. And then you're going to ask mm -hmm. them to do the people that they're going to have follow them as they follow Jesus. You're going to ask them to follow, uh, Absolutely. To, to say, Hey, you need to invite others to follow you as you're following Jesus. And, and you see this multiplication effect really take root and take shape as we do that. And I think a lot of times, you know, it, I think we overly complicate it, but I think the reason we overly complicate it is because I think we get a little overwhelmed by the, the proposition of it, right? It's the sharing of our lives. Mm -hmm. They, Mm -hmm. The time investment, whether it's the person being discipled or the discipler, um, I think all of that is, is fair game. But I think not to lose sight of the end goal. You know, the end goal is to see a multiplication movement to build up 
uh, God's kingdom, you know, and to really make much of Jesus. And I think about what you have done with so many, and I've benefited from that as well. And I think of even um, the fact that others now are doing that exact same thing. You know, you can't manufacture that. That's, mm-hmm. that's kingdom fruit. That's right. That's right. The, the, the authenticity of sharing our lives with other people. And I think, I think back to even how, how you have um, not only done that for others, but then how in response to that um, we're, we're seeing them take steps in their own leadership journey. And I love watching how much you affirm that in others. Like you're so good at (laughs) encouraging and celebrating that. In fact, I, I joke around with you because it took me about a year to get you on this podcast uh, because <laughs> you would much prefer me and you just having coffee together, grabbing a meal, you know, mm-hmm. drive. Uh, you much rather support me in a very personal relational way in that, that context versus necessarily right. be, being behind a microphone, so to speak, <laughs> and having your thoughts like broadcast like that. Um, but I think that really speaks even to your heart to be a servant leader and to serve like Jesus. And so as, as we think about that idea of discipleship, one of the, the things that I think um, can be misunderstood is how in our discipleship journey and process that we can talk about the basics of our, our faith and our doctrine and belief systems and even things like evangelism and fellowship and spiritual gifts and you can go through a list of things right but oftentimes the thing that isn't mentioned as part of discipleship and i think we're we're slowly starting to see more people talk about it um is three areas one is really this emotional health and this mental health component but the Mm -hmm. other part Mm -hmm. is this this justice area um that sometimes when we talk about the area of justice people tend to say, hey, this is really about uh, a political agenda, which when they say that, they're really speaking of earthly politics, not kingdom politics, <laughs> the kingdom of mm-hmm. God politics. Mm-hmm. So my, right. my question for you, and, and we can go back and forth on this, is um, you know, how does justice fit in the kingdom of God, and, and what is our part to play in the midst of that, How? Well, um, I, I think one of the things that, uh, that God desires uh, in his kingdom and among his kingdom people is, is, this, is this idea of justice, hmm. that uh, we ought to live justly. He calls us to do that, but we also ought to be um, those that are committed to seeing uh, justice fleshed out in the daily arena of our activities and interaction with each other. And when I think of, uh, when I think of justice, I'm, I'm talking about a right relationship with God, a, ju- a just relationship with God, a just relationship with each other, or a right relationship with each other as well. Uh, recognizing that, um, um, all of us are created in the image of God, and so when you talk about issues of justice, then that means that um, there should be no no difference in how we how we treat people. And I'm talking really on the macro, 
on the macro level first Mm -hmm. is that people of varied uh, races, uh, cultures, backgrounds, they all ought to be treated with the same kind of respect. Mm. Um, I can't, you can't, you can't really talk about uh, justice in this country without talking about the issue of, of race. I mean, it's so, to me at least, it's so obvious, it's so, it's so blatant. Um, and uh, as one man has put it, he titles his book, uh, America's Original Sin, mm-hmm. the, issue of, uh, the issue of race, that uh, though we say in our Constitution all men are created equal, that was not the case mm-hmm. in the founding of this country. All mm-hmm. men were not created equal. So uh, justice is an issue, I think, that that ought to be on the forefront of all of our minds and hearts as believers. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times um, our, our white brothers are afraid and sisters are afraid to really talk about that issue um, because it's easier to kind of sweep it under the rug mm. than it is to really deal with it and the implications of it in, in this country. So, you know, we, we justify not talking about it uh, by, by statements like, well, I didn't have you in slavery and I didn't teach, treat you that way, or I have not been, uh, I have not used uh, racially offensive words to talk about you. And that may be so, but the truth is we live in a racial society, a society that was founded on uh, white supremacy Hmm. in this country. And um, you don't have to do anything for racism to continue in America. The systems have already been set in place Hmm. and they just continue to perpetuate themselves until those that are righteous and just decide that we're going to tear down this system and do what we need to do in order to make it a more just system. Yeah. And I guess if you ask me, you know, you know what, what I would say, and you've not asked this question, but let me offer it. What yeah. I would offer to white evangelicalism is that we know white evangelicals know how to speak. We know how to, they know how to speak about and against issues. They know how to speak about and for issues the issues that are important to them, they speak out about it. And, and we're clear, we know what they are. I mean, they're the buzzwords that represent evangelicalism, uh, you know, like things like abortion, hmm. right? Any, anytime the issue of abortion comes up, white evangelicals know how to speak to that issue. Hmm. I have no problem at all with them speaking about that issue. Yeah. I'm not trying to poo-poo it. Uh, but I, I use that as an illustration that we know how to speak about issues that are important to us. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the issue of race, all you hear is crickets from white, white evangelicals for the most part. And mm-hmm. I'm, again, when I say this, I'm not talking about, I'm not necessarily referring to individuals. I'm right. talking about systemically. I'm talking about culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we don't have evangelicals volunteering to speak against the issues of or about the issues of race in America, except it seems 
when that racial issue is supportive of white supremacy hmm. Hmm. instead of African-American equality and not just African-Americans, but others as well, but black and brown people in particular in this country. Yeah. And I was going to say too, when you think about the constitution where it says, you know, all men are created equal. I think, I think uh, we would say scripturally, um, all men are created equal. They are endowed with being an image bearer of God, right? We would call that mm-hmm. Absolutely. Day, uh, mm-hmm. from Genesis 1, uh, 27. But I would say that as you look at the founding of the Constitution, not only did they, uh, the founding of our country and the Constitution as it was written, not only uh, did they not view everybody created equal <laughs> as image bearers of God, uh, they didn't treat everybody as equal, right? They they treated correct uh, our black brothers and sisters and many others um, with this viewpoint that they're just property. You know, anybody who was a right. minority um, in a lot of ways uh, was treated as less than, you know, and not not only less than, but treated not as a person. You know, they were dehumanized um, in the midst sure. of that. And then, you know, I think mm-hmm. about when you get to the New Testament and Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall, shall, shall be added unto you. It really gets to what Hal was talking about, that there's this righteousness that we have through Jesus, through what he has done for us. This gives us a right standing with God. But then as we have this right standing with God, we want to live rightly uh, with one another. And then we want to see his righteous ways unleashed on the earth. So whenever there's brokenness, our, our goal as we are in partnership with Jesus is to see those things brought to light and see restoration take place. But you can't have restoration mm-hmm. without an acknowledgement that there's brokenness. And sure. I think about what, what you said about some of the systems that are systemic systems that have been, you know, you know, systemic issues that are within our systems. Um, I wanted to ask you, what are some of those systems that come to your mind that perpetuate uh, racism in our culture? Sure. Um, I mean, there, there's so many. There's some that have start, historically have happened. For example, we talk, you know, we look across America and we wonder why, um, why is America so divided in terms of housing, for example. Well, it's not that black people have chosen to live in one community uh, as opposed to living in another community. It's that the ghettos, if you will, that have been created in America didn't happen by accident. They were created by housing policy that was initiated and perpetuated by our government. Mm. Uh, Things such as redlining, where if a black man or black family tried to move in a particular neighborhood, they would not make loans available for them to move in those communities. So as a result, African-Americans had to move or buy property if they could afford to buy property in communities on the other side of the tracks, so to speak. Uh, That's a nomenclature that we use, but it really does represent what much of life is like in America. There's one group that's on one side of the tracks and the other group lives on the other side of the tracks, so to speak. Um, so there have been ho- housing policies for like uh, making uh, mortgages available uh, 
uh, or not making mortgages available to black people in, in certain communities. Um, for example, when people were coming home from the Second World War, the government made, um, made loans available to the GIs that were white, and we see these communities that developed across America, like in not far from where I live, you've got the community, for example, of Levitt Town. It was named after a Mr. Levitt who developed these, um, these uh, small homes, uh, you know, three bedroom, you know, two bath kind of homes in these communities. And they were really developed for the GIs as they were coming home. So they would have per, uh, places to live. Mm. And then they would give um, low interest loans mm. to these soldiers and their families to buy these homes. Well, black people, when they came home from the same war, mm. were not able to get mortgages to move into these communities like, like Levittown, just in north, northeast of Philadelphia and, and what we now call uh, Willingboro in New Jersey. And they also had them up in New York, but these were large, communities developed and listen you can uh, the there was so much racism involved in that i've looked at for example and you can just google it on or, or go to like youtube hmm. and look up levittown hmm. and they'll have people and you'll hear the racism when a, an african-american attempts or an african-american finally gets an opportunity to move in one of those communities and the the racial hatred from those who are already there, who, who don't want them around. And when you think about it, this is like in my generation. Yeah. I mean, I'm old. I recognize that. But, oh, man, you're, but, still, uh, you're, still the, you're still the Fresh <laughs> Prince, bro. You're the original Fresh Prince. <laughs> I just didn't make it. I didn't make it to Bel Air yet, though. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> made it to New Chipotle. So, right? you know... <laughs> Yeah, so any, anyhow, these kinds of policies mm -hmm. that our government has enacted um, uh, keep our nation divided, mm -hmm. has given um, opportunity to those who are white, and has taken away opportunity from those who are black. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when America, early days of America, and the settlers coming, and they started moving west, as they moved west, White settlers were given land to farm mm. and loans to develop those farms. Well, blacks never had it. And mm. so all of these kinds of, one of the greatest ways of developing wealth in America is by having a home, mm. a house, and the value of a home, and then being able to pass that along generationally and the equity that it builds over the years. Mm. Well, there's a reason why black people are not economically um, uh, as as um, economically as uh, as developed as most of white America is, mm. on averages that is, mm. is these policies don't allow African Americans to take advantage of the opportunities the opportunities that are available to the broader community, mm. um, and so you see this ongoing poverty uh, in among African Americans. Um, the educational system. I want to know why, why you can go to a school in Philadelphia and there's paint chipping from the walls. The water fountains don't work. 
There are no computers or limited computers for the classrooms for the students. The books don't come in that have been ordered. Uh, buildings are in disrepair, asbestos. They've had to close a number of schools here in Philadelphia over the last Philadelphia over the last couple of years because mm-hmm. they've discovered they have asbestos in them. Well, most of these old schools have asbestos, mm-hmm. but nobody talks about it. But then you can cross the line and go out into the county, and they're brand new schools with all of the books, all of the computers, all of the facilities that are needed. And we don't, and and we can't seem to solve the education problem in Philadelphia, but we can solve it in the counties where they can get a good education. Well, one of the one of the major ways to get out of poverty is through education. Hmm. And if you start off with uh, a lack of education, hmm. how can you? When do you? When can you ever get caught up? If if you miss the the foundation years of your education. When are you ever going to get caught up later on? It's extremely difficult. And so you're starting off behind the eight ball, as it were. So these are systems that, um, unless we're willing to buck the system and change it, are going to continue to perpetuate black ghettos, uh, poverty, um, and a generation uh, and generations of people that are not going to be able to compete in the open market in this country. And we like it that way, Mm. evidently, because we do nothing to change it. Mm. Yeah, you've said to me, too, about, you know, with the school system, specifically in Philadelphia, uh, in our conversation, and I wanted you to speak on this system, too, Mm -hmm. about how there's a, a pipeline from the school system to the prison system. Can you, can you articulate that a little bit for, for our listeners? Yeah, a few, a few years ago, um, I don't know the exact dates, but a few years ago, America made a shift in the prison system, and they opened the door to the privatization of the prisons. Hmm. And so basically it's prison for profit. Hmm. So how do you determine how many prisons you need? Well, uh, and I believe it's Michelle Alexander in her book about the new Jim Crow. She talks about this prison uh, pipeline uh, in our educational system where they can predict by the age, by, by the grade, by the fourth grade, they can predict how many prisons they're going to need. Because from first to third grade, you learn to read. From the fourth grade on, you read to learn. So if by third grade you can't read, your opportunities for learning are greatly diminished. And so they look at those statistics and they say, okay, how many are not reading by the fourth grade? Whatever the percentages are, they're going to go from not reading to ultimately they're going to end up in prison. Um, for lack of large degree because of lack of education and lack of education means you have lack, you uh, lack the opportunities to provide for yourself and for your family. And with those limited opportunities, what do you do? You turn to the criminal system. You, you steal to eat, you steal to provide for your family. You, you see no hope for getting out of your economic situation. And so you do what you have to do to, 
to survive. And so, you know, we want to wonder why, well, why would these people do these things? Well, if you lack opportunity, if you have no hope, if you can't see your way out of this condition, what do you have to lose in taking on a life of crime? So if we're not willing to do something about education, we're ultimately not going to do anything about poverty in this, in this country. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I just found it really insightful what you were sharing, you know, just in, in the, the broad scope of, you know, s- these systems that perpetuate a lot of the things that we see with poverty, um, cr- the criminalization uh, of, of black men and women, you know, the, this, this cycle that we often talk about, right. You know, you hear, you hear those mm-hmm. terms yeah. around, um, but a lot of times you don't understand why, you know, why some of those things exist. And then I think mm-hmm. also there's a, a narrative that can start being formed that it's only like, uh, you know, it's only African-Americans that live this type of, of way. Uh, but really when you look at the statistics, there are a lot of, uh, Anglos, white white men and women who are in prison mm-hmm. and poverty and right. all these things. And so what can happen is we can even, in the midst of addressing those systems and being honest about them, we can even uh, lose sight of the fact that we can form um, narratives that may not be yeah. fully well-rounded. And I, and I love how you've done such a great job of saying, hey, this is what's going on here. <laughs> but then we talked about mm-hmm. even this other other part of it where there's like middle, the middle uh, class of, of black and, and um, black men and women, you know, throughout our country as well. And a lot of times we, you know, we, we lose sight of, you know, in the midst of all that, that is not, there's this other pocket of people and we, we start to, again, form a narrative around, Hey, only, only uh, the poor people in the communities are those who are black. Right. <laughs> and the only right. those who are right. middle class or upper middle class are the white. Right. And it's like, sure. oh, mm-hmm. no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Like, that's not totally true because, you know, as I'm talking to Hal and, uh, you know, we're talking about the people he's invested in and poured into in, in my relationship with him. We know that um, these issues, these issues exist no matter uh, what your race is. I think that the biggest problem, though, and what Hal was getting at is there's a lot of systemic issues that if we're not careful, we'll try to address the fruit without getting to the root. And you're going to hear me say right. that throughout this podcast mm-hmm. a lot, um, is that we got to get to the root of what's going on and in order to change the fruit. So as we think about that, how, and I hope that what I was saying made sense as far as just sure. really being sure. careful, we're not, um, not that you were doing this, but I think sometimes you know, every time we hear about black America, <laughs> we make, you know, we paint them in such broad brushes, you know, and we don't, we don't talk right. about the, the whole, you know, like there's, there are little, uh, it's a little, uh, again, narrow minded and short sighted. And yet there are these issues of, of the system. So as we think about that, I wanted to ask you, how would you like to see the church lead the, the charge in compassion based ministry and racial reconciliation? Yeah, let me let me just before I answer that question, let me just uh, make a comment on what on what you just said. Yeah, yeah, um, um, America does have a race issue, but America also has a class issue. Yeah, where it's uh, poor people are forgotten people in this country, Mm. Um, which is which is contrary to what Scripture says. We ought to be caring for the poor, right? And yet we treat them very often as 
second-class citizens. And poor doesn't mean black. Right, that's right. Poor is those who are economically disadvantaged. And they include people across the spectrum mm-hmm. in this country. They're poor blacks, they're poor whites, they're poor Hispanics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we could say the reverse. But there is this, I think there is this painting of uh, the culture where the, where the culture uh, paints African-Americans in a particular light. Yeah. Uh, and very often, more often than not, it's a negative light. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we think about urban, we think about, you know, people conjure up this idea of black, but black is only a part of urban life. Urban life, part of the density that happens among urbanites is there are all kinds of people gathered in urban centers across America. It's not, it's not one race mm-hmm. um, or, uh, you know, one people group that's there. It's the conglomerate of of uh, of races that gather there so and i think uh, you know that painting with that broad brush right uh leads to things like uh like people wanting to talk about uh, for example you bring the issue of race up and then somebody wants to bring up the issue of well what about black on black crime Mm -hmm. wait a minute where even did the phrase black on black crime come from Nobody ever talked about white on white crime. Mm-hmm. It was just crime. Mm-hmm. Now, if a black man kills another black man or if a black man does something to another a, a black person, we've now categorized it as black on black crime. Uh, well, if you want to do that, then let's talk about white on white crime. The reason there's black on black crime is because there's white on white crime and people want to know, when are you going to solve that issue of black on black crime? And my response would be as soon as you solve the issue of white on white crime. <laughs> right. Yeah. The reason there's crime African-Americans against African-Americans is because most crime occurs in the communities where the people who are committing those crimes live. And those communities are typically divided by race. So black people commit crimes against black people. White people commit crimes against white people, Hispanic people commit crimes against Hispanics because we live in close proximity to each other generally. So that's where you get that from. But we've labeled it as if like black on black crime is worse than everybody else's crime. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it exists in all of our cultures where there's that there's crime. Um, so I, I I just wanted to I wanted to point that out because well, I well, do I, think it need, it's worth underscoring what you yeah. were talking about. Well, because I Go think ahead. I think what can happen too though is right like we then not only do we have this we have this unconscious bias within us right so we don't even know it's there but you know there, right. there are reasons even like you know the whole thing that happened in, in Brunswick uh, Georgia with, with Ahmad Aubrey mm-hmm. you know. You know, you can say whatever you want to say about the situation, but here's the reality. This guy was just jogging, you know, and exactly. He's a black man and he's, he's already assumed to be guilty of something just for jogging in the neighborhood, you know, and, and there's mm-hmm. a, there's a, you know, again, a, a bias in a narrative that's formulating in the midst of the minds of, of people. And, and I think the other side of that is then we limit um, what, black men and women and other minorities can do right so if we think in our mind they're only like poor and criminal or you know criminals you know then then that limits in our minds 
wait a minute, like, what about the ones who are who are at a, a different place in a position without neglecting those who, you know, are are in poverty or in incarcerated? You know, we care about all those things from the justice side of things as we are kingdom of God people. But I think what could easily happen as well is to, I've heard people say, well, there's not a lot of like, you know, leaders within the black community. And I'm like, is there not a lot of leaders or are we, <laughs> or, or are we, are we neglecting where the leaders may be? Are we looking for the leaders? Are we, you know what I'm saying? Like, like yeah. You know, yeah. To, like, I don't know. I, I look around me and I, I see incredible black uh, men and women and other minority leaders. Like I have them all around. Absolutely. Me. You know, like I have mm-hmm. them with you, I have them with Cal Canty, uh, Dr. You know, Dr. Cal Canty, Dr. Larry Anderson. Um, I mean, I can go through a list of, of people that I could pick up the phone and call and say, man, you, mm-hmm. you're an incredible leader. And I don't, this is not tokenism, you know, and this is not, uh, oh man, look, see, I have, I have this black friend, you know, <laughs> like we often talk about. Like, right, like, right, no, right. Like if mm-hmm. you ask them, they know I respect them and I will follow mm-hmm. them. I follow how. Um, because he's he's um, worthy of following, and he's following Jesus. So I, I just think there's a real danger, without us even knowing uh, that w- that we do that. Because I'm like, man, how do we continue to remind people like all around us, uh, you know, hey, these are the leaders that are that are um, they don't look just like me, um, but we share a heart that's around God's kingdom agenda, and and really just wanting to not lose sight of that in the midst of, yes, there's a lot of things we need to address and we should address those, uh, but not losing sight as well as there are other uh, people who don't look again, just like me and don't come exactly from my same story who are incredible leaders. And I just, I think sometimes there's a short sightedness mm-hmm. and they kind of, it started to irk me a little bit when I was thinking about <laughs> kind of some of that, that conversation and narrative that I've heard um, over the last several years where it's like, well, they're, they're not there. And I'm like, well, again, are you looking for them? And are you willing to do what we said on the front end, develop them? Like, cause right. you know, I think that's an yeah. important part. So I don't know. Do you agree with that well, for me? I absolutely. Absolutely agree. And I know this is not a denominational broadcast, right? I, but, but I serve, you know, you talked about my CPC work, church planner, catalyst work, which I do as a uh, Southern Baptist missionary. And um, I've been a Southern Baptist missionary for almost 25 years now. And, you know, you get tired of sitting, which is a predominantly Anglo Mm -hmm. organization Mm -hmm. uh, that I've been a part of. I've been a part of it much longer than that, but I've actually been a missionary with Southern Baptist for almost 25 years. And you get tired of sitting in the meetings and when positions open up or they need to hear from someone or they need someone to train or whatever it is. And they say, well, we just can't find any qualified African-Americans. And we think that they think that that indicts the African-Americans for the lack of leadership. When what it really does, it indicts the one who makes the, who, who suggests that we can't find any, it indicts them because it shows that their world is so limited that they don't have enough relationships beyond people that look like them to know that there are lots of African-American leadership le- leaders who fit the bill for what you're talking about, 
Yeah. But your world is so small and so limited that you don't see them and don't recognize them. And even if you did, you just think they're not good enough to do what you're asking or going to ask them to do. Mm. So it gets, you know, it gets old after a while when, when people say they're just no quote qualified African-Americans. That's, that's an old story that just, just doesn't work. Well, and I think, um, and it's yeah. unfortunate. Well, and I think even, that was one of the most beautiful things about what's going on on a local level with uh, Pennsylvania and South Jersey Baptist Resource Network family. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I have loved um, the proximity of people who are different than me and the representation of a lot of different uh, races and, and ethnic, you know, just the ethnic backgrounds that people are coming from. And even to watch um, the leadership locally you know say hey these people they, they have value you know they have significance i think about not only you know dr we talked about dr anderson and dr uh, kyle canty but also i think about cliff jenkins and i think about you and others um and i i just really I, I i don't disagree with what you're saying but i'm grateful in the midst of that how barry whitworth the executive director has said hey no man we're not gonna <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna like lean mm -hmm. in some hard conversations and we're going to make sure that we acknowledge that there are so many qualified people, um, both, right. you know, you know, Anglos, African-Americans, other minorities to represent Absolutely. the team. We should look like where we are, right? We're in Philadelphia, you know, we're part of Pennsylvania and South Jersey, which has a lot of diversity in the midst of it. So as you mm -hmm. think about all that, how, and, and I just wanted to ask you, you know, how, how would you like to see the church lead uh, the charge in compassion-based ministry and racial reconciliation? What would you like to see happen? Well, uh, I think you said it earlier that if anything is going to happen in racial reconciliation, I think the church has got to first come to the place where it acknowledges that it has a problem. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be some awareness that there, there's a problem. There's a problem in this country. We can't ignore it. You know, it's no longer adequate for you to say, uh, you know, one of my best friends is African-American. That's just not I mean, that that shows the, the ignorance uh, to make that kind of statement. So we've got to do more with making people aware of uh, the fact that you mentioned Ahmaud Arbery. I can guarantee you I could probably talk to, you know, 10 Anglo brothers or sisters. And if I mentioned that name today they would have no idea of who I'm talking about, mm. nor what happened. Mm. Because a lot of mainstream media has not picked up on it. And if they have, it's not been an important enough story that people have really listened. Mm. And, and people don't, I, I think, you know, people don't believe, they believe there's this underlying story that there they go now, talk, they always want to talk about race mm. uh, as if it doesn't exist. So we've got to do much, much more bringing an awareness of uh, racial issues uh, to bring to bear on the majority culture. Uh, I, I think we've got to work harder at relationships Yeah. because th that's really where it comes from. And I mean, I mean, genuine relationships, not just, you know, not just surface relationships. I'm talking about people that you sit down and, uh, you know, not just have a, not just have a coffee, a cup of coffee with, but people that you sit down and have in your home 
during those special occasions mm. who are really uh, a part of your life, a part of your extended family, if you will. We've got to have, uh, we've got to look at those kinds of relationships. You know, not just coming to the com- company party where they're African Americans, black people, brown people, white people, whatever. It, it, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But that doesn't go deep enough. Yeah. And then, then we've got to have, I think, a commitment to to do something different, where where we recognize that the systems are already in place and will never change unless we determine to change them, that I'm going to be an advocate. I can't tell you, uh, you know, uh, Joe, we've been walking through this last year and a half or so with some other pastors in the greater Philadelphia area and just talking about some race relations and issues. And we've been reading some books together and Dr. Barry Whitworth has kind of led us through some of that along with Dr. Anderson. And that's been extremely uh, beneficial and helpful, uh, I think, to everyone who's in the group. Uh, But at some point, you've got to move beyond that to commitment. And um, I'm so proud of, uh, I was looking at Facebook over the last, I don't know, week or so, you know, here and there. And I've seen you and a couple of other brothers who are part of that group who took some initiative. I don't know that they were asked to do it but just took some initiative because of what they understand, what they know uh, because of their relationships. And because, you know, this can't just be an African-American fight, Mm. the issue of race. It's got to be that the broader community says it's an important issue of justice so that I'm going to add my voice to those who are crying against the injustice that goes on in this country. And so I was just so proud to see some posts where they were not ashamed of talking about the issue and adding those voices, their voice to the other voices that are out there and saying, you know, we need, uh, we need justice for this brother. He, what, what is it? What is it that a young African American man cannot jog through a community and not fear having his life taken from him? All he's doing is jogging through a community. But you know what? It reminds me, Pastor, it reminds me that I get up every day. Every day I get up and I'm reminded, you are an African-American man in America. Mm. I don't know if white brothers get up and say, I'm a white brother in America. (laughs) But every day I get up and say, I'm an African-American brother in America. Mm. It 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 determines some things that I do and that I don't do in my journey during that day. There's some places I don't go or sometimes I'm very cautious uh, because of that, but I'm, I'm aware of it. I'm constantly aware of the fact I'm African-American. I'm African-American. I look at the TV, for example, and I watch these, um, I guess, I guess they're white supremacists. And if they're not, I, I, I apologize for labeling them as such, but they are white, uh, white brothers who protest in the streets, for example, protesting the COVID virus. And they, they want the country opened up again. And they're in full military gear. They're carrying rifles and guns and knives. And I say to myself, can you imagine 
if a group of African Americans did that and went to the state capitol like that, mm. armed like that, I can guarantee you they'd have SWAT trucks out, SWAT teams and trucks out there before you can bat an eye. Mm. And they would remove them from that site and it, it would be a war going on. Now that's how I feel about it in in my experience in this in this country that some people can get away with it they can do it but other people can't black men in particular are some of the most feared people in this country yeah uh, I and I don't think it's fair I don't think it's reasonable but I live with that truth every day yeah which uh, I have to imagine that is tiring and it makes you angry i'm imagining um sad um you know i know you get kind of all of the above yeah, all would, of the above i would imagine that there's a lot of trauma um that comes from from that um is, is that a would that be appropriate to say absolutely L listen i go into the store and pick up i go into the wild i pick up a cup of coffee and a, a tasty cake and a bag of chips or something you say you want a receipt Absolutely. And I want a bag because as a kid, it was drilled into us. You go to the store, you put your, you, you make sure your groceries, whatever you're buying are in a bag and that you have a receipt because you run the risk of somebody accusing you of stealing. So that's like, that's your ticket. That receipt's your ticket. It says, I'm okay. I'm okay. It's legit. I didn't steal it. And that's kind of stuff is just drilled into you. I can guarantee you that the average man in America doesn't think through that. That's not his issues, but they're my issues every day. Yeah. I, yeah. I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you how, like in the midst of that, like what are some of the things that, you know, I know you mentioned places you don't go, you know, but what are some of the things you had to tell your children or you were told as a kid, I know you mentioned the receipt, you know, thing from Wawa and having a bag and a receipt, you know, um, what, what are some yeah. of the other things like that? And, and even, how would you encourage parents who do have um, African-American children or they themselves are African-American in the midst of that? Right. Uh, how do, you know, what, what, would you, what would you say to that? Yeah, sure. Um, my, my, I, have two, I have two sons. They're grown now, but, you know, one of the things I, I tried to help them understand that being a black man in America, you've got to, you got to look out for your own safety. For example, I don't, I don't know another people group that's got to teach their children. How do you respond to a police officer when he pulls you over? Hmm. I can remember as a young man, I, I grew up in Philly during the Rizzo years. He was Rizzo was the mayor of hmm. Philadelphia back then. They treat him like a hero now, but African-American community feared Rizzo. He was a former police officer. He was former uh, police chief, and then he became the mayor. And you know, his, his, his philosophy was law and order. And he used to brag about the fact you could stand on any corner in Philadelphia, and within two minutes, you will see a police officer drive by or walk by that it was almost like a police state. And the way, way I grew up is we got every time a police officer was behind us and we're driving in the car, it was like you sit up straight, you make sure everything is in order because you know we're getting ready to get stopped. 
and you could be in your own community where you live. And there's this fear all of a sudden. And so we had to keep, teach our children, if you get stopped by a police officer, this is how you behave. You don't run off with the mouth. You might, have, you might feel like you have rights, but you are still a black man in America. You got to keep that in mind. You keep your mouth shut. You, you talk to him with respect. You try to give him the answers to whatever questions he's asking because what's important to you is that you need to get home safely. Mm. I want to see you come home. I don't want to see you come home in a body bag. Mm. You're already feared because you're black. Mm. And God forbid you have a hoodie on when he stops you. Mm. You know, for some reason, that seems to be a symbol of mm. uh, blackness and engenders, and engenders some kind of fear in the majority race. Uh, you know, I don't get it all. Um, but you know, you got to, we've had to teach our children how to, how to navigate through that so they can get home. So don't, you may, you may think that they stopped you for the wrong reason. And listen, Pastor Joe, let me tell you, even today, to this day, when a police officer pulls me over, I'm nervous Hmm. and I begin to pray. My hands go up on the wheel. I want to make sure I'm on the steering wheel. I want to make sure he can see them. Uh, can I have your, uh, your driver's license and your registration, sir? Mm. Yes, sir. Listen, I need to go in my glove box mm. to pull it out. Is that okay? Right? I'm not making any moves to reach for it. Mm. Right? Because he'll shoot and ask questions later. Mm. I need to go in my back pocket to get my wallet out. Is that okay? I, so I'm asking to make sure that what I'm about to do, you're, you're keenly aware of what I'm after. So there are no mistakes about it. Okay. Well. So those are the kind of things that, that we've got to te- teach our children to do if we want them to come home. Mm. Uh, I, don't, I, don't want it, I don't want the story in the newspaper to say I thought he was reaching for a gun. Mm. I don't want that to be the story. So I'm, I'm getting permission all the way along this this whole process. Yes, sir. What else do you need from me? Mm. Mm. I, you know, you were speeding five miles over, whatever. Mm. Um, you know, I know they say, don't, don't admit to anything. I get all that. I'd rather get a ticket than a bullet. So mm. if I need to admit I did it. Okay. I can maybe try to fight it in court if I need to. But the main thing is I want to get out of here. I'm on the highway. I'm by myself. There's nobody here but two of us, and it's his word against mine. And guess who wins? Mm. Mm. That's it. Well, I wanted to ask you how, because first of all, I'm sorry, man. That's that's uh, it's hard, man. You, you, it's you don't need to be sorry. All of us have our issues we have to wrestle with, yeah. and deal with in this world, and um, yeah. But I wanted that's to, one of the things. Yeah, but uh, you know, mm-hmm. I just as a but I get it. I appreciate that. I think, I think I'm sorry in the sense of just the, the stronghold of, of racism in our culture, you know, and that sin and just, yeah. Yeah. You know, like, Lord have mercy on us. Help. You know, we need, we need your, your mercy and grace and truth to break that down, you know, and that can only happen, you know, when we come under his name and authority, right. And we do it together. Yeah. So mm-hmm. as you, as you think about all those feelings, 
how, I mean, how would you encourage uh, parents with, how have you been able to manage your fear um, in your, your anger and your sadness um, around this issue? Um, and when I say manage it, I, I really am speaking to the fact that um, it, it's not to ignore that it's there, but really, you know, it could easily overtake you, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean you don't take what's happening serious. I, I'm just curious from your perspective, how, I mean, how have you been able to do that? Well, um, you, you know, you really do, at least for me, you, you really do have to trust the Lord yeah. that ultimately he's a just savior hmm. and that he'll ultimately deal with it. Hmm. Um, and I make a commitment that um, I've got to watch over my own soul hmm. and I can't let that make me bitter hmm. and angry at people. There are times I need to pull back or there are times when maybe, maybe I'm doing some reading on race or something um, and I get a large dose of it at one time and I've got to pull back and say, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is too much because it's now spilling, the bitterness is spilling over into my soul, which I don't want to happen. I want to learn. Yeah. I want to understand better. I want to get the facts. Right. But sometimes if you get too much at one time, the heart can't take it. And so I have to back away and ask the Lord to cleanse me and refresh me and remind me that we're talking about systemic issues. And, you know, I work in a predominantly Anglo white organization. I pastor a predominantly white church. And I don't want, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want, my disappointment hmm. or my moment of anger hmm. to spill over at, at people in a way that is unproductive and, and certainly unhealthy and maybe even sinful if I'm not careful. Hmm. So I've got to constantly be renewing hmm. my mind so that my soul, uh, remains anchored in the Lord and his goodness and his grace and remind myself often that we don't live in a perfect society. That's just one of the, you know, race is one of the, you know, big issues that we deal with in this country is certainly not the only one. And, um, you know, I don't want to dislike people yeah. and I don't want to be angry at people. Because they're different from me, because I've got to remind myself that they are created in the image of God, just like I am. They may look different than I look. They may have grown up in a different context than I grew up, but they're made in the image of God. They're God's children. They deserve to be honored and respected as such. The very thing that I'm hoping that people will give me, I've got to be willing to give to them as well and not waiting for them to give it to me, give it to them give it to them by grace, even though they may or may not deserve it. I want to give them what Jesus calls me to give to them. He's got to deal with a lot of the, the other, the other things. He's got to deal with that. I can't, I can't change a man's heart. Um, I can present him with issues. I can present him with the word. I can try to love him, but I can't change his heart. 
the spirit of God has got to do that. Hmm. And so I just want to be a catalyst and I don't want my stuff, my anger, my bitterness to get in the way of what God might want to do in the heart of someone else. Hmm. Hmm. So, so good. You know, and, and one of the things I would say too, even with that is, uh, I think that goes for us all, no matter what our skin color is, you know, are, are we treating people? I think it's a fair question to ask every day. Am I treating everybody mm-hmm. with the honor, dignity, and respect that they deserve because they're an image bearer of God, you know, and yeah. treating them the way I want to be treated as an image bearer of God. And, and I, you know, I think about a lot of the conversations we've had over the many years, how, and one of the things that I think I've had to learn through that is, there's an awareness part that is necessary. So to lean into conversations and to listen um, more than mm-hmm. I would necessarily talk and give commentary, ask a lot of questions, you know, right. But then let that spur onto appropriate action as you know, we are joining arms together and we're linking arms. And eventually you guys are going to hear from people who are part of uh, the, those racial uh, reconciliation roundtables that we've been a part of that Hal mentioned and I want you to hear what they're mm-hmm. doing in their, their church and their context as well, because we, we really want to um, be the people who are seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness so that all these things should be, will be added unto us. We want to be about his kingdom business here on the earth. And I, you know, I think about a conversation we had a couple of, I think it was about a year ago, two years ago, you said to me, uh, do you remember this? You said, <laughs> we're in downtown Allentown, you said, Hey man, why don't you why don't you go by your legal name, Jose? Do you remember this conversation? Mm. Jose Reverso <laughs> Velarde is my legal name. My, yes, dad's, sir. my dad's from El Salvador, and and I and I, you know, told you the story a little bit, and and really, it, I'll, I'll use the abbreviated version. But my my parents got divorced when I was two, and my mom didn't legally change my name, but started calling me Joseph, and so all the teachers mm-hmm. knew me as Joseph, and you know, and I, I explained to you that story and. Mm-hmm. even uh you know t- we talked about you know even my upbringing and dealing with the police and myself and kind of my right. own personal fears like when i'm on the highway how i have to i get behind mm-hmm. the car because <laughs> i get a little because <laughs> they, were, they were in my home as a high school student you know and i was right know, right house. but anyways all that to say you you said to me you said you know um it's probably better that you go by joseph or joe versus jose um, it's better for you, not necessarily better in the sense that, you know, you should be ashamed of your, your uh, El Salvadorian roots, but more because it's, your name's more acceptable if you're a Joseph or a Joe. You know, it has sure. less of a, a minority uh, context and concept through it. Mm-hmm. And, and that mm-hmm. really struck me, not because I didn't agree with what you were saying. I, I, it, it struck me and it made me sad. Um, all at the same time, uh, because it it reminded me, you know what? What would it be like if my name was Jose? Like, what are people like? You know, how would my life potentially be different if you know I was a Jose versus a Joe or a Joseph? And you know mm-hmm. what? A lot of people will live in that reality because of their color or name. They're not treated with the honor and dignity and respect that they deserve. And so, as we wrap up this conversation. And I know you've mentioned some things. What what would you say? And then we're gonna I'm gonna have uh, Pastor Hal, the Bishop, as we affectionately call him, uh, pray for us. But how would how would you encourage us to helpfully walk alongside our minority 
brothers and sisters? Like what are, what are some ways in which we could helpfully walk alongside them? Well, again, uh, a real commitment to relationship, not in a superficial way, but a real commitment to relationship. I think, uh, because we're both in, in ministry, I think one way you can do it is a, a real partnership in terms of churches interacting together, Mm -hmm. uh, where each of them brings something different to the table. Uh, they learn from each other, uh, nothing greater than, you know, working side by side with someone. Yeah. on a project or a ministry that is close to the heart of both of them and getting to learn in that process, mm-hmm. uh, learning how, you know, perspectives change, um, you know, the, 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 the difficult questions about, uh, or the easy questions about life, uh, you know, the answers that we give are very easy when we look through this one lens that is ours. Mm-hmm. But when we begin to expand ourselves, and try to look through the lens of others and how they see life and how they see a particular issue, it can change uh, dramatically. Uh, We talked earlier about, you know, education, for example. You know, it's easy from suburbia to look at a city and say, well, why don't they just fix the schools? Hmm. Well, it's not that simple. An answer. you know, the same ones who say, why don't we fix the schools, don't realize that the government that you voted in is the same government that says we're only going to give $20,000 per student in this community to educate them and $10,000 in this community to educate them. Well, what have you just done? You set up a system that will continue to perpetuate the poverty that people are already experiencing. Now we've talked about all of that, but what I'm what I'm trying to do is illustrate that when you when you get close enough and you recognize that the answers are not that simplistic, as simplistic as you think, you know, all of us can solve the problems of urban America from the suburbs. Because mm. you don't know enough. Mm. Right? And you don't have any pushback. But when you're there and you live it and you know it and you rub shoulders, you recognize that they're a little more complex than that. So doing ministry together in close quarters, understanding each other's context, I think can take us a long way. Uh, and, and then making a commitment, and this is nothing but a biblical admonition, making, making a commitment to look out for my brother and my sister's best good. Yeah. I want to do, I want to make you, I want to put you first and I want to ask the question, what can I do? What can I offer in order to help you to become everything God wants you to become? What can I do about the systemic issues that are in your community? It's not just about what I'm facing in my community. If, if we all make decisions based on what's best for us, we'll never get there. We've got to be willing to say, Hey, I have this and it may not be best for me, but maybe I do need to go up a, a quarter percent or be willing to go up a quarter percent on my taxes in order for money to go into this mm-hmm. so that people who don't have it can have it. Yeah, it costs me something, but isn't, what, that what, isn't that what Jesus called us to? Mm-hmm. If any man would come after me, mm-hmm. let him deny himself, take up the cross and follow. 
So there's got to be some self-denial where I say, you know what, I, maybe I wouldn't do it this way, or maybe this is going to cost me a bit, or maybe this takes me out of my comfort zone, but I'm willing to do it for my brother. I'm willing to do it for my sister. I'm willing to do it as, an, as a demonstration of the love of Christ for people who need this particular thing. I'm willing to make that kind of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. So it takes some sacrifice as well. Yeah. So those are some some initial things I would I would offer. So good, man. Well, Hal, thank you again for for being on the podcast. I wanted you to just pray specifically um, for this issue that we're we've been talking and diving into, and just that this stronghold would be broken. Um, would mm-hmm. you, you mind just leading us in a, a time of prayer? Sure, I'd be happy to. Be honored. Let's pray together. Our Father, you are the, uh, the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. And you do what pleases you in the affairs of men. And I'm so thankful that in your providence, you, you brought uh, Pastor Joe and I together and you brought us to this place of, of uh, doing this podcast mm-hmm. in spite of what I thought about it. Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't what I volunteered to do, but I was willing to say yes, as my brother has asked me. And I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know who's going to hear it. But I know you're the sovereign Lord, and you don't, you don't waste opportunities. And so I pray that, uh, that you would get it to whoever it needs to get to, where it's going to make a difference in their lives and maybe move them forward in uh in uh, their goal of racial reconciliation or moving beyond the things and the ways that they are stuck in uh in their own heads and their own spiritual development in places that are unhealthy lord i uh i thank you for this country i thank you for what this country has meant for uh all of us and where we've come from but I do recognize it's not a perfect place and my heart breaks because uh, of the brokenness in our country. It's not just our country. Sin has broken us individually, but sin has also broken all of our systems. All of our systems are broken because of sin and it's broken because of sin is because broken people create those systems and they create those systems from hearts that are broken. And so I just pray for, I pray for your restoration on individuals. I pray for your restoration on our systems that are so broken that, that, um, that keep people impoverished, that keep people on the outside, that prohibit people from moving to the next level, from uh, interacting with each other in, in love and with grace. And so I ask God that by your Holy Spirit, that um, that you would you would step in, that you would fix us, mm. and then give us what we need to do to fix these systems. I know you're not going to do for us what we're not willing to do, mm. and so give us a heart that wants to. Mm. For it is you who works in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. Mm. So give us the want to to see these systems changed. And then give us the will to do it, to press forward, to make the hard decisions 
to talk to the right people, to put our own uh, personal interests aside and the interests for the broader community in the forefront. Help us to be willing to do it, to go, to sacrifice in order for it to happen. Thank you for my brother, uh, Joe. Thank you for his willingness to uh, create this platform and make it available to a broader audience. And Lord, I pray nothing less than that your will would be done um, on earth just like it is in heaven. So would you have your way among your kingdom citizens here on earth so that um, so that the nations might hear, so that the nations might know that you and you alone are God, and beside you there is none other. And we ask these things gracefully in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, Hal, thank you again for being on the podcast. Thank you for your friendship and your ministry and the good work that you're doing. I'm so grateful that I get to be in partnership with you, man. And uh, it's just been such a joy um, to know you and even to experience um, your encouragement and support of me and so many others as well. So thank you again for being on the podcast. Well, bless you, my brother. I appreciate the opportunity and thank you for your friendship over the years as well. And I look forward to the journey that God's going to take us on as we move from here and get to the place where he's taking us. Amen to that. Amen to that. Thanks for joining us for the Vision for the Valley podcast. We'd love to connect with you and to hear from you. You can find us on social media at Vision for the Valley podcast, or you can email us at Vision for the Valley podcast at gmail.com. 